Let's pray together. Father, we need you this morning. We need you to convince us that Jesus has paid it all. And Lord, we also need you to guard our hearts. It would be so easy for us to distort what the text before us says and to use it as an excuse to go on sinning. Lord, we pray that your spirit would permit none of us to do that. Lord, it would be easy for us to be discouraged to the point of despair by what this this text says. And we pray that you would lift up our hearts. Father, it would be easy for us to become so suspicious of people and so unforgiving of other sinners that we could become unable to love, unable to trust. We pray that you would guard us. We pray, Lord, that you would hold us fast and make us people who are able to maintain the balance of what your word says and how we should respond to it. And help us, love to tr- help us Lord, to trust sinners even though we know they don't necessarily deserve to be trusted. At the same time, Lord, we ask for wisdom that you would help us to be realistic about what we can expect from people. Lord, there's no way for my words to put all these things right in your people's minds. And so I cry out to you and ask you to order our thoughts aright as a result of the teaching of your word. Help us to hold in in correct balance what Romans 6 says and what Romans 7 says and what Romans 8 says. Lord, we love you and we commit all these things to you. Praying for your help in the name of Jesus. Amen. Yesterday I read a review of a new book about the nuclear disaster that took place at Chernobyl in Russia. And the review, Ukraine actually, the review opens like this. It says, at 11.55 p.m. on April the 25th, 1986, arguably the worst disaster in the history of nuclear technology began to unfold at reactor number four in the Chernobyl nuclear power plant in Ukraine. And the article goes on to detail how this detritus, this radioactive waste, was released into the atmosphere and also penetrated into the ground. And it it has corrupted the whole region. In fact, I, I think it's the case that Russia has basically forbidden anyone from entering into, the Ukraine will not let anyone enter into that area. Uh, because it is still so dangerous. People can, can uh, be infected and, and, and can grow fatally sick. In fact, there was a, 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 a remarkable quote in the article. It said, after the explosion, many of the graphite blocks that were once part of the reactor core lay strewn on the ground. 
They were so radioactive that even being in their presence for minutes could be fatal. So can you imagine this graphite block lying on the ground, and if you're exposed to this thing for even a few moments, it could kill you. Well, something like that kind of explosion has happened in the world when Adam sinned. And our sin is so pervasively poisonous. Human sin has so pervaded all of reality that that it is fatal for all human beings. There there were fears that that waste would penetrate so deep into the ground that it it would get into the water table and make the water of that entire region undrinkable. We are in a situation, we're looking at Romans chapter 7 this morning, and we're going to be looking at verses 13 through 25. And what this passage tells us is that there is radioactivity, sinful radioactivity, that has, that has poisoned us. And it's poisoned us to the point that we are not able to do what we would like to do. So this is a sober passage that's before us. And and I'm praying that this passage, the Lord will use this passage, both to explain our own hearts to us, to explain to us why we go on sinning, and also to help us understand the people around us in our lives and to respond to them rightly. Now, responding rightly doesn't look like rejecting them. It doesn't look like not trusting anyone because everyone is so sinful. Responding rightly looks like putting all our hope and trust in the Lord. Who, who saves people and redeems people and renews people. So as we approach this passage, the first thing I, I think we need to do is get our heads around the context. So we're still, we're still working out of that statement in Romans chapter 5, verse 20. If, you wanna, if, you, if you're open to Romans, and I hope you are, if you want to look at Romans 5, verse 20, Paul says here that the law came in to increase the trespass. And, and I would just remind you that what Paul is doing in this section of Roman, Romans is he's, he's trying to counter a, a, a mistaken notion among his Jewish contemporaries. And it's a mis- mistaken notion that maybe uh, even non-Jewish Christians can lock on to, whether they've been influenced by Jewish people or not. And it, it comes down to this. God's ultimate program to bring about salvation is the law. And, and what people need to, to, to be right with God is the law. I mean, I think that this kind of thinking pervades covenant theology, and I think it, it results in a, people that adopt that system. Uh, they, they think that the, the moral law expressed in the Ten Commandments is still binding on the Christians, and, and then it leads to all kinds of legalistic expressions. But what Paul is saying is that that was not the purpose of the law. The law came in to increase trespass. So it's, it's sort of like what the law did was it brought a meter that measured how radioactive sin was, and it exposed how fully infected everything and how dangerous everyone is. The law came in to increase trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And then we've been looking at the way that Paul responds to this truth. So in 6, one through 11, he asked the question, in 6.1, should we go on sinning to make it so that more grace will be abounding around us? 
And his answer, of course, is no. You, you died with Christ. You were buried with him in baptism. You've been raised to walk in newness of life. And then he asks another question in 6.15, and the question there is, having just said in 6.14 that we're not under law but under grace, he says, okay, should, should we go on sinning since we're not under law now? Which, if you think law is what keeps people from sinning, you might think that grace couldn't do the job. And so Paul is saying, no, grace does not compel people to sin. And what you present yourself to obey, you become a slave to that, whether that's a slave to sin or a slave to righteousness. And he's arguing that we've been entrusted to the teaching and we're now slaves of righteousness and so we should cultivate grace-empowered obedience. And then in 7, 1 through 6, he explains that we've actually died to the law. So we're released from the law. And, And all of this teaching has probably, in Paul's experience, prompted uh, questions and and mistaken conclusions that his dialogue partners would draw. And we see one of them in 7.7. Probably all these questions are uh, those that Paul has entertained over the years. In 7.7, he says, What then shall we say? That the law is sin. And Paul's answer is, No, the law is not sin. But the law did provoke more sin. And now that brings us to 7.13, where he asked the question, did that which is good then, he's just said that the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good in 7.12. Okay, so the question is, did the good law bring death to me? And, and what Paul is going to argue is, it's not the meter that causes the radioactivity. You, you, you see the analogy here? It's not the law that brings death. It's sin that results in death. And this is what he's been teaching throughout Romans. Uh, Through one man, sin entered the world, Romans 5.12, and death through sin. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It's not the law that kills. By no means, he says here in 7.13, it was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin. So what Paul is going to do here is he's going to argue this point, that it's not the law that brings death, it's sin that brings death. And as he develops this, he's going to state his thesis right there in 7.13. The thesis of this this section, 7.13 through 25, if you want to call it a topic sentence, if you want to call it a main point, all those things work. The thesis that Paul is arguing is, it's not the law that brings death, sin does that. And then what he's going to do in 7, 14 through 17 is talk about this inexplicable reality of sin in our lives and, and, and the way that we are indwelt by sin. And he's going to explain to us why it is that we don't understand what we're doing. So we have this inexplicable, which means you can't understand it. You, you can't explain it. But, but it's, it's real, and it's in us. We have this inexplicable inability. That's 7, 14 to 17. And then in 7, 18 through 20, in many ways, he's going to repeat himself. He's going to restate it, restate what he said in 7, 14 through 17 a second time in 7, 18 through 20. And he's basically saying that nothing good dwells in our flesh. If you look at 7, 18, I know that nothing good dwells in me. And then in 7, 21 through 23, he's going to draw a conclusion from this, that that there is this ever-present evil 
that, that's still at work in our mortal flesh. And then in 7, 24 and 25, he's going to talk about our hope and the reality in which we live. Um, so what I want to do is I'm, I'm going I'm to take another run at that, another run at the overview. So there's an overview of 7, 13 through 25. I'm going to run through that again and with a summary sentence for each little section of the passage, and then we'll go back and work through the passage again. So 7.13, here's what Paul is saying. The law did not cause my death, sin did that. And and I think maybe clear here that I think Paul is talking about Christian experience. I don't think he's talking about pre-Christian experience or the experience of general humanity. I think he's speaking as a Christian here. In 7, 7 through 12, there are all these past tense statements. In 7, 13 through 25, it, it's all in the present tense. And um, there, there are all these first-person singular statements in 7, 13 through 25. So I think Paul is talking about his own, his own life here. So 7, 13, the law did not cause my death. Sin did that. 7, 14 to 17, I am of the flesh, indwelt by sin. We'll talk about what that means. 7, 14 to 17, I am of the flesh, indwelt by sin. 7, 18 through 20, nothing good dwells in my flesh, but sin dwells in me. 7, 21 to 23, I have an ongoing struggle with ever-present evil. And then 7, 24 and 25, I'm wretched, but Jesus will save me from the anguish of this already not yet situation. So that there's a summary of, of this passage. Now let's, let's look together at uh, chapter 7, verse 13, where Paul asks this question, did that which is good then bring death to me? And as I've said, what he's asking is, did the law bring about my death? And from this illustration that I'm sort of developing here, it, it ought to be clear that it's not It's not the meter, it's not the law that results in the death. What the law does is exposes how sinful people are. You notice Paul said back there in 7.9, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came in, sin came alive and I died. So it's almost as though we're inhabiting that region of Chernobyl and we don't realize that we've been contaminated with this stuff that's going to kill us. And then somebody comes along with a meter and shows us just how sick we are. And, 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 and all of a sudden we realize, I'm a dead man. I've, I've only got, a, I've got no time left to live. So Paul is saying, it was not the law that did this to me. It was sin. Producing death in me through what is good. And here my analogy breaks down. Because here what Paul is saying is, what sin does is it uses the good commandment against me to kill me. And, and again, he had said this in 7.11, sin seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So again, sin killed Paul. So it wasn't the good law. It was sin producing death in me through what is good. So you can see in 7.13 that he's really, in some ways, summarizing and restating things that he said in 7 through 12. Why Why did God design it this way? Why would God make it so that sin produces death through what is good. Well, look at the purpose statement there in 7.13. The first one, he says, in order that sin might be shown to be sin. Why was this demonstration necessary? 
Why, did, why is it necessary for sin to be shown to be sin? I think it's because in our sinful flesh, we think sin looks awesome. We see it and we think, that looks amazing. That looks like so much fun. That looks so joyous. It, lo it looks like such relief. It looks like such pleasure. And what happens is we reap its wages. And what's, what's happening is God is saying, no, sin is sin. I think, I think that's why sin kills us. God sets it up this way so that we reap the consequences of our actions. And he does this in order that sin might be shown to be sin. And then he goes on, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. In other words, what happens is the, the commandment shines the light on the evil of what we're doing, and we realize that is utterly wicked. What looks so pleasurable to me is actually harmful to me, harmful to others, harmful to all kinds of people in my life. And it's going to destroy me. So, so God sets this up for sin to kill us in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. Our flesh believes that sin is awesome, but death demonstrates the truth. So let me just give you an application of this. We ought to want to fight sin in our lives. We, we ought to want, we want to lay hold of this, the teaching of this verse, and we want to renew every resolve within us to resist temptation, to turn away from evil, to, in the language of Psalm 101, set no evil thing before our eyes, to tolerate no cultivation of sinful desires in our hearts. That's, that's how we want to respond to this. We want to see that sin is sin, and we want the commandment to expose, us, expose it to us as being sinful beyond measure. So we want to smell the fumes of burning flesh in hell, which is what sin, sin leads to. And we want to hate that stench. We, we want to realize that if we indulge these things, that burning stench could be us and it could be those we love. Now, in 7, 14 through 17, Paul talks about this inexplicable inability and indwelling sin. And what he's arguing here, as he says in 7, 14, he says, we know that the law is spiritual. And I just want to note here that you know, sometimes people say there's no reference to the Holy Spirit in 7, 13 to 25, but actually you have there a reference to the law being spiritual. We know that the law is spiritual. So I think what Paul is, is communicating is that the law came by the Holy Spirit, it was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and the law, in order for it to be effective in us, the Holy Spirit has to be at work in us to, to cause us to, as the old Baptist catechism says that there's this Baptist catechism question that asks the question, how do we know that the Bible is the Word of God? And the answer is, the Bible evidences itself to be the Word of God by the heavenliness of its doctrine, the unity of its part, parts, and its power to convert sinners and edify saints. And then it says, but only the Spirit of God can make us willing and able 
to receive the Bible as the word of God. So the, the law is spiritual. We know that the law is spiritual, but then he says, but I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, we need to contrast what Paul says when he says, I am of the flesh, with what he says in chapter 8, verse 9. Look at, look at chapter 8, verse 9, where he says, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Notice he doesn't say, I am in the flesh, in 714. It's a slightly different expression. He says, I am of the flesh. Now, what, is, what does he mean here? I think what he means is what he has communicated when he says in chapter 6, verse 12, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body. So when he says, I am of the flesh, I think what he means is, I'm still in the mortal body. And then look at what he says in 8, 10 through 12. He says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, that's the mortal body again, the spirit is life because of righteousness. And then he says in 8.11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, there's that again, through his spirit who dwells in you. So when he says in 7.14, I am of the flesh, I think what he means is not I'm in the flesh like I'm an unbeliever, but I'm in a mortal body. And this mortal body, because of, the, because of the radioactivity of sin, because we've been contaminated by it fully, this mortal body, all of its, all of its appetites, all of its inclinations, all of its attractions, all of its instincts, everything about us in our mortal bodies is inclined in the direction of wickedness. We're inclined in the direction of selfishness. I am of the flesh, sold under sin. Now, redeemed, yes, but sold under sin. And I think, I think there's an already not yet dynamic here where we've been already made alive by the power of the Holy Spirit. We talked about this. We talked about how uh, back in chapter 6, um, in verse 4, Paul says, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead and given a glorified body, a resurrected body, we too might walk in newness of life, life that anticipates that resurrection glorification. But, but the resurrection life that we enjoy is not yet in a glorified body. So there's an already but a not yet at work in us. And as a result, we are both not, 8-9, not in the flesh and 7-14 of the flesh. And, and Paul articulates this in, in, in Romans 8 itself. Look at what he says in 8.15. He says, You did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons. So we've got the Holy Spirit, the adoption as sons, and then look at what he goes on to say in 8.23. He says, Not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit, the spirit of adoption, groan in inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So Paul is saying, we've received the spirit of adoption, but we haven't been adopted yet. We've got this new life in us, but we haven't been raised from the dead yet. We're still in these mortal bodies. And I think that's what he means here in 714 when he says, I'm of the flesh, sold under sin. And then he makes these statements that are tragic, and wretched, 
and agonized in 7, 15 through 17. And then he's going to say them again in 7, 18. And then he's just going to re- almost repeat himself again. And so look at 7, 15. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. I was looking yesterday for, this, for a quotation that I have heard uh, attributed to Blaise Pascal, and I found some other quotations, but I'm, I have it in my head that Pascal said something like, we have not yet probed the depth of our own sinfulness. And, and I think that's what Paul is saying here when he says in 7.15, I do not understand my own actions. You cannot plumb the depth of your own wickedness. I mean, there are so many stories I could tell you from my own life. And, and, and if I told you all these stories, you would think so lowly of me that you'd probably never want me to preach here again. Um, there, there was a time early in our married life before we were having children. We were having uh, dinner with um, some other people, and this wretchedness, wickedness came out of me. I mean, I'm sitting there with this wife that I have sworn to love, honor, and cherish. And I said words at that dinner table that, that shamed her and that, that communicated my own pride and that sought to, to identify me with the people that we were having dinner with over against her. It was horrible. It was horrible. I do not understand my own actions. I, was, I can't even remember... I know the guy's name. I can't even remember his wife's name. Those people mean nothing to me. My wife means everything to me. I do not understand my own actions. Our pride and sinfulness is so deep in us and so wicked. Paul says, I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do what I want but I do the very thing I hate. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. I think this passage is why people say things like, when I read the Bible, I find that it's the book that understands me. It's the book that makes sense of who I am. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Verse 16, now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So you hear what Paul's saying there. He's saying, look, I'm... I'm agreeing with the standard, and and I'm repudiating my own actions, so I'm agreeing with the law that it's good. And then he draws a conclusion here. And in this conclusion in verse 17, Paul is not making excuses. He's not making excuses, and he's not giving you a kind of of get-out-of-jail-free card. Nobody should read this verse and think, oh, well, then I can just indulge in my sin. Paul's arguing against that in this very section of Romans. But he says in 7.17, so now it is no longer I who do it. Now notice what he said. Look at 7.15. I do not understand my own actions. He's owned the sin that he doesn't understand. But then he says in 7.17, so now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And I think that sin that dwells within me is another way for him to talk about, I am of the flesh, sold under sin. 6.12, 6.12, in a mortal body. Seven, uh, sorry, 8.10, uh, the body is dead. 8.11, uh, your mortal bodies. It's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. We, we are indwelt by sin. We have been regenerated. We've been given the life of the age to come, but we have not yet been glorified. 
And our spiritual life already enjoys what will be in the future, but our bodies are not yet there. And thus, this passage. Paul essentially repeats himself in 7, 18 through 20 with some variations. Look at, look at 8, 7, 18, for I know that, and then just look back at 7, 14, for we know that. Very similar phrasing. And now here in, in 7.18, he says, I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. Notice in 7.14, he had said, I am of the flesh. Now he's saying in 7.18, nothing good dwells in my flesh. And then he had talked in 7.15 about how he doesn't do the good that he wants, but the, what he hates. Now he says in, in 7.18, in the middle of the verse, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And, and I just want to think with you for a moment about, about the desire to do what is right that I think everybody can identify with. And I'm not, I'm not even talking about like flagrant, you know, headliner kinds of sins here. Just think about what we want to do, the desire to do what is right that Paul's talking about here. What we want is to love God. What we want is to love our neighbors. And we want to live for honor and nobility. We want to live self-sacrificially. We, we would like to be utterly good. And then there's what we do. And what we do is love ourselves. And often what we do is we hate others. And, and we act in pride and self-exaltation and self-preservation and self-seeking and self-pleasing and self-loving. And instead of thinking of the needs of others, the comfort of others, the joy of others, we ourselves are always foremost in our own thoughts. Every situation we find ourselves in, we think first of how we will be affected by it rather than what someone else may need or what God would require of us. And all this self-focus is instinctive to us. Nobody has to teach it to us. We don't have to train to accomplish it. Sin dwells in us. Paul says here in the middle of verse 18, I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. Verse 19, for I do not do the good I want. Look back at middle of verse 15, I do not do what I want. Verse 19, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Verse 15, but I do the very thing I hate. And then he concludes in verse 20 with the exact words that he had stated in verse 17. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. How do, how do we respond to this? I think the first thing we want to do is examine our own hearts. But we don't want to stop there. We don't want to stop with self-examination because you could live there forever. You could be like Martin Luther going into the confessional and never wanting to come out because you still haven't exhausted all the ways that you've sinned. That, that if, you're, if we're honest with ourselves, that's where we could easily be. Um, I think we want to go back to 520 again. 
The law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And what we want this to do for us is not just to expose how sinful we are, but also to communicate anew to us how gracious God is. God didn't look at any of us and, and feel, I need that winner on my team. It's not the way it went. Everyone, anybody that ex has experienced the grace of God has experienced the grace of God. Not God thinking, I can't win without him or her. Grace abounded all the more. So we want this to increase our appreciation of God's grace. We, we also, we, we want to be, to be delivered from false estimations of ourself. There's a famous commentator on Romans named Cranfield who, he says this. He says, the more seriously a Christian strives to live from grace and to submit to the discipline of the gospel the more sensitive he becomes to the fact of his continuing sinfulness. The fact that even his very best acts and activities are disfigured by the egotism which is still powerful within him. And no less evil because it is often more subtly disguised than formerly. We may get better at hiding it, but we haven't eradicated it. It is still there. And that also... We also want to apply this to other people. And we want to be realistic. Jesus called us to be, to be gentle as doves, but shrewd as serpents. As, as we were sitting here in this service this morning, I was reflecting on the ways that this applies in our lives. And you know, I, I teach at the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary there. I have an office there. And it's a, it's, a, it's a facility that is devoted to the training of ministers for the gospel. And every office in the building has a lock on the door. And the locks are necessary. The locks are necessary because this passage is true. Why do you need locks at Southern Seminary? Because Southern Seminary is full of sinners, that's why. We want to be realistic about other people. We want to be realistic about with whom we can entrust our children. And, and you know, there, there, there's a fine line between being overly suspicious and being realistic about sinners in the world. And somehow we, we're trying to attain a balance here between being realistic about with whom you can entrust your children and how you really need to recognize that sin indwells every person. And it, it's, it's just a reality of the world that we live in. And you know, this, pa this passage, I think, also can equip you and, and, and deliver you from delusions about humanity that could cause reports like the one that's in the Houston Chronicle today about about sex abuse in Southern Baptist churches perpetrated by often Southern Baptist pastors, that could be crushing to somebody's faith. That could be, that could be so devastating to somebody's walk with Christ. But if you believe this passage, what you know is, yeah, it's that bad and probably worse. It's that bad and, and there's a whole lot more sin that is yet to be exposed that will come to light. And, and our faith is not dependent upon followers of Jesus walking in righteousness. Our faith is dependent upon Jesus and his righteousness. And the fact that his followers fail to live up to his standard of righteousness should only convince us how good the standard of righteousness is. It shouldn't cause us to lose faith in Jesus, the one who walked in righteousness, the one who created the standard. 
But this passage can equip us to deal with, I mean, that, this, this report is devastating. It's, it's horrific. It's awful. But a passage like this will, will give you theological categories for understanding humanity. And Paul comes to, to draw a conclusion in 7, 21 through 23. So he said, I'm of the flesh, 7, 14 to 17. Nothing good dwells in my flesh, 7, 18 through 20. And so now he, he concludes, he says, so I find it to be a law that when I do, want to do right, evil lies close at hand. There's this ever-present temptation, the power of evil. Verse 22, for I delight in the law of God in my inner being. I think this is another indication that Paul speaks as a believer here. Uh, this is not a legalistic kind of Pharisaic. This is a, a, a genuine delight in the truth of God. Verse 23, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Now, before we read on, I just want to draw your attention to the way that Paul is again speaking of members and he's speaking of waging war. Look back at 6.13 and what he had said there. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness. So anybody that takes this passage and uses it as a cop-out is working against Paul's purpose. Paul is not giving you a cop-out. He's not giving you an excuse for your sin. He's commanding 6.11, you must consider yourselves dead to sin. And this is why. Because sin indwells us. Consider yourselves dead to it. So you've got to fight. Let not sin reign in your mortal body. 6.12. 6.13, do not present your members to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. So sin is waging war and seeking to take us captive. And then there's this anguished, despairing statement in 7.24, wretched man that I am. Uh, Pascal said, he said, uh, man's greatness comes from knowing he is wretched. A tree does not know it is wretched. Thus, it is wretched to know that one is wretched, but there's greatness in knowing one is wretched. Because the wretchedness can drive you to Jesus. Look at what Paul says here. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Notice the body of death again. This is exactly the way he talks in 8, 10, and 11. The body is dead, mortal bodies this is exactly the way he had spoken in 6.12, mortal bodies. Who will deliver me, the future deliverance from this body of death? I think he's talking about the resurrection from the dead. And the answer is in 7.25, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So there's hope for the future resurrection, which I think means that there will be anguish and agony arising from indwelling sin until Christ returns or until we die and then are raised from the dead to be given a glorified body. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. And then there's this sort of summary conclusion where Paul says in 725, so then I find my, 
so that I myself serve the law of God with my mind. But with my flesh, there's that again, I serve the law of sin. So there's this, this duality um, that's at work and that saints through the ages have testified to. Fyodor Dostoevsky is a famous Russian novelist, and he said this about the Lord Jesus. He said, Christ is the ideal, the ideal of beauty, the ideal of freedom. Lose him and we have nothing, nothing but money and drink and crime. And in Dostoevsky's own life, wretchedness manifested itself in an addiction to gambling. He, he, would, he would go and, and he had these debts and he would try to get himself out of debt by, by gambling his money. And what happened was he lost everything. He lost everything and the people around him in his life were devastated but he never stopped trusting the Lord Jesus. And he never stopped repenting of the sin that he knew was in his life. And that's the victory. The victory is never to stop repenting. The victory is that there's a struggle at all. That there's a fight against the sin. To lose the victory is to stop fighting. To lose the victory is to stop repenting. So if you're here this morning and you're not a believer in Jesus, we're offering you hope. The hope that comes from turning away from your sin and, and joining in the battle against it by faith in Christ. John Newton said this, I am not what I ought to be. Oh, how imperfect and deficient. I am not what I wish to be. I abhor what is evil, and I would cleave to what is good. I am not what I hope to be. Soon, soon shall I put off mortality, and with mortality all sin and imperfection. Yet, though I am not what I ought to be, nor what I wish to be, nor what I hope to be, I can truly say, I'm not what I once was, a slave to sin and Satan. And I can heartily join with the apostle and acknowledge by the grace of God, I am what I am. Let's pray together. Father, we long for the day when our mortal flesh will be swallowed up in victory. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to be lifetime repenters. Keep us from trying to deny that Chernobyl has happened and that it has affected us. Lord, make us those who, who recognize that only you can save us, that Jesus is the only hero. And Lord, we pray that you would keep us from all the erroneous ways that we could deal with this passage, and we pray that you would cause it to work only good in our lives, to explain to us why we always fail, to give us appropriate expectations about other people and to give us the hope for the day when you will rescue us from the body of death. We love you. We pray that you would help us to fight our sin by the power of your grace, by the power of the Holy Spirit. And Lord, we praise you that Romans 8 is coming. And we say all this in Christ's name. Amen.